Enter your code. Retinal scan required. Agent confirmed. Good morning, and welcome to Now Playing's Mission Impossible Retrospective Series, Mr. Hunt. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch and review each movie in the Mission Impossible series. Your team for this mission will be Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob. This mission will be dangerous, filled with top-secret plot spoilers and mild language. As always, should any member of your team be caught or killed, the Secretary will disavow all knowledge of your actions. This recording will self-destruct in 30 seconds. Today we're discussing Mission Impossible 3, starring Tom Cruise, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Ving Rames, Billy Crudup, Michelle Monaghan, Jonathan Rise Myers, Carrie Russell, and Larry Fishburne. Oh, I'm sorry. Lawrence Fishburne. What about Simon Pegg? And Simon Pegg. <laughs> Matt, well, Maggie Hugh is like, why can't I get any respect? I'm Nikita. <laughs> Directed by J.J. Abrams. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Stand by to go live on my mark. Three, two, one. Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob, the host that's pissed off every Italian in Rome. So Mission Impossible 3, I'm just going to say right up front, I really find the behind the scenes, why it took six years to get to screen, so much more interesting than anything in the final product. Isn't that because the last one was so bad? <laughs> no, it was a hit. It was a huge hit. It, I, they must have been chomping at the bit. But come on, let's face it. There are a lot of external and internal threats facing Tom Cruise and Ethan Hunt at this point. I mean, keep in mind, one year after Mission Impossible 2, 9-11. You're not going to be able to have the same kind of flippant spy story that's just taken from you. They cannot keep in the vibe of woo. Also, there was just so much behind-the-scenes stuff. The intent, as of 2002, was to get the new film out in 2004. Directed by, if you can believe it, David Fincher. <laughs> I can believe no. it. You yeah, he's a journeyman. I mean, he does commercial stuff. His name has been on a lot of things that he didn't end up making, but could have been worse than Benjamin Button. He dropped out to do Lords of Dogtown and then dropped out of that as well. Yeah, he was supposed to do 2,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I mean, yeah, he's, his name is always on top projects, but rarely does he commit. And he was replaced by somebody far less notable, Joe Carnahan. Yeah, Cruz loves him. Who? The only thing I really know about Joe Carnahan was he did the A-Team movie, which is incredibly underrated. Yeah, and, and I believe The Grey as well, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, he's a screenwriter that became a director, and he has polished lots of Tom Cruise projects and their friends. Well, he worked on this for over a year, working on the script. He had a full cast assembled. Kenneth Branagh was going to be the villain. Carrie Ann Moss was going to be the love interest when Tandy Newton, who was invited back, said no. Hmm. Scarlett Johansson was going to be basically what ends up being the Felicity role in this movie, Carrie Russell. Okay. And Ricky Gervais was going to be the funny Brit that ended up being Simon Pegg. And he worked on this for over a year with Cruz, and finally in 2004, he's like, I don't like the direction this is going in. I quit. He filmed his quitting on the phone because he was saying, this is the end of my career in Hollywood. I'm quitting on Tom Cruise. I'm 
torpedoing this movie. Yeah, he couldn't stop the project, but yeah, they, it could stop him for sure. He has worked, but sparingly, a lot more in small movies. Yeah, but it did hurt this movie because this was supposed to be out in 2004. He quit in July of 2004. It was on track at that point for 2005. So then, because Tom Cruise was suddenly available, they shot War of the Worlds. Instead, War of the Worlds was supposed to be after Mission Impossible. Cruz was working, trying to find a new director, went and shot that film with Spielberg. And apparently somewhere in there, he found the time to binge watch Alias and go, wait, I like this J.J. Abrams guy. Spielberg might have dropped his name. He, he knows J.J. Yeah, that was kind of my belief is there may be a Spielberg connection in there beyond just Cruz loves Alias. Sure, but you bring up an interesting point. There's a lot of spy things in this decade now that there's a lot of competition. Before, back 96, all he had to worry about was Pierce Brosnan. But now 24 is on television. Yeah, Alias was on television. Born franchise is doing well. Bond is just about to relaunch the same year this is coming out. Hell, Die Hard is coming back the next year. Cruz is, you know, a small fish in in a big pond all of a sudden. And he's not used to being that size. Well, <laughs> well I mean, he is yeah, that size. He's just as ego. Nicole Kidman couldn't wear heels. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's used to being a smaller size, but not at the box office. Not when it carries Hollywood clout. Something else happened. To gain in stature, he jumped on a sofa. <laughs> yes, that was the internal problem that I was referring to, his PR nightmare that was the year 2005. Yeah, because of that, he had to take a major pay cut to get this film moving, and it was demanded he have a number of decent co-stars, hence Philip Seymour Hoffman and Simon Pegg. And Simon Pegg is just ironic. In a press junket for Shaun of the Dead, somebody asked him what it's like to be a major Hollywood star, and he just laughed like, well, it's not like I'm going to be in Mission Impossible 3 or anything. <laughs> I do feel that makes sense because Stuart with that first Mission Impossible you're like this is all about Cruise when it's supposed to be about a team I do feel like his role is toned down a little bit here at least for part of the film so that does make more sense now that I hear the behind the scenes stuff I don't feel like this is an ensemble any more than the last two were but yeah his hair's toned down I do <laughs> see a dramatic downsizing of the ego and a humbling they're definitely repositioning him this is Jerry Maguire the spy here it's going to be all about his family there's going to be a lot of teeth there's going to be a lot of romance <laughs> it's a love story this time for sure because he's trying like hell to hold on to his female audience after telling Brooke Shields she should not be have postpartum depression yeah, I'm torn. First of all, I certainly got that Jerry Maguire feel during the opening party at the house. I'm like, mm -hmm. am I? did I put in the wrong disc? I do own Jerry Maguire. <laughs> at least there's no flamenco dancing for the first half hour. <laughs> but the other thing is, it's a movie about Tom Cruise hopelessly in love with a skinny brunette. That still might be hitting a little too close to couch jumping for my tastes. Well, he wants it to look normal after, yeah, trotting it out to Oprah fanfare and having it look like a football rally in which, yay, he's going to get married to this child. Now he <laughs> wants it to seem very normal. And, and this movie, yes, it's all about family. If there's one theme that's hit often, it's going to be that it's him and his wife. And if he has to give up being a spy, so be it. But he is a man committed to one woman. This is also, though... J.J. Abrams' first directorial feature film. We released our review of Super 8 last month to Kickstarter supporters. So with this, 
We have now reviewed every J.J. Abrams film. Wow, every film. So what are they? This was his first, and he had the highest budget ever for a first-time film director. <laughs> well, he had done a lot in television. I, I think he had earned that. But okay. So Mission Impossible 3, then what? And don't forget, he wrote Armageddon. I mean, that just right there deserves the paycheck. What? He wrote Armageddon? I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. He was one of the writers on Armageddon. Credited writers? Yep. Yeah, but, you know, who can say who wrote what on Armageddon? Okay, yeah, he had he had worked on major things. Joyride was his script. Yeah, I get that. He had earned his spot. Then what, the Star Trek movies? Yep, you went straight from Mission Impossible 3, stayed in the Paramount family, Star Trek, then Super 8, then Star Trek Into Darkness, and we'll be continuing to keep up with him with The Force Awakens this December. Yeah, you know, I'm a casual fan. I've kind of enjoyed everything that he's made. I, I recognize his touch. He is emblematic of filmmakers I really do like, like Spielberg, and I think he's close enough to be a pretty good facsimile. I I even read his book. He had a, a, a novel come out a couple of years ago called S that was rather clever, and I'm always happy to see his name. It makes me feel better to see his name on Mission Impossible 3 than John Woo returning. I loved Felicity. <laughs> That's why she's in this. Oh, that was his show? Yeah, that was his first show. Oh, interesting. And so, yes, Carrie Russell's uh, cameo is explained. Yeah, and of course, I'm on the record as a diehard Lost fan, and the few episodes of Alias I've seen, I liked. Jennifer Garner was really good in it. But how about Orsi and Kurtzman? I mean, we're on the record. Maybe it's more a Michael Bay hate than anything, but they are the people that always script those Transformer movies. And they've had their names on some confusing botched Hollywood projects as well. Uh, Cowboys versus Aliens and, you know, even the Star Trek movies. Yeah, uh, Into Darkness specifically. Yeah, I, I feel like we've been pretty hard on these screenwriters, and maybe deservedly so. I do feel like this was pause when I saw that they were writing J.J.'s Mission Impossible. Between them writing almost every movie I see and Michael Giacano scoring it, I just feel old. I don't like <laughs> any of these people. <laughs> Michael Giacano can do one thing. He did it on Lost. If you like that thing, that's great. But does he need to score everything now? He can't do themes. He can do sounds. Well, he's lucky in that basically all he has to do is variations on a very good spy theme here. They don't throw out what's working for Mission Impossible. There's still a team. There's still that team theme song that goes back to the television series. Of course, when they play that, that wasn't even orchestrated by Giacano. They brought in somebody who actually knows music. Right. So, but my point is, is that there's a spine here for everyone to follow. Tom Cruise goes back to Mission Impossible when his career is floundering and he's taken maybe too many projects that took him away from his formula. J.J. Abrams is a TV guy, so he's going to be following into the big screen with a TV project. All these people, Orsi and Kurtzman, there's two other movies to emulate here. I do feel like they hit beats that are familiar. They have a plot that's like straight out of part one. Yeah, they improve part one's plot, I feel. I feel like I understand it at least, but... Yes, that, that's what I mean by improving. <laughs> yeah, why, why don't you give it to us, Arnie, and then we can just get into Mission Impossible 3. Since we last saw him, Tom Cruise's character Ethan Hunt is a changed man. He's retired from field work, taking a job at Top Gun or IMF training new agents. He's also in love, engaged to marry a nurse named Julia, played by Michelle Monaghan. But when Hunt's star pupil, Lindsay Ferris, played by Carrie Russell, is kidnapped, Ethan is tapped to lead a rescue mission. That request comes from fellow agent John Musgrave, played by Billy Crudup. 
Joining Hunt on the mission is longtime companion and computer hacker Luther, played for a third time by Ving Rhames, pilot Declan Gormley, played by Jonathan Rise Myers, and seductress Zen Lee, played by Maggie Q. They retrieve Ferris, but there's a small explosive in Ferris's brain and she dies. Hunt wants to avenge his student, but he's put under scrutiny by IMF director Theodore Brassel, played by Lawrence Fishburne. Despite the reprimand, Ethan and his team continue to try and capture the mastermind who kidnapped and killed her. Arms dealer Owen Davian, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. He is after something called the Rabbit's Foot. But before he goes on the mission, Ethan gets married in a shotgun wedding to Julia. But there's a traitor among the IMF, and Ferris believed it was Director Brassel. So Hoffman is quickly rescued, but he now knows Ethan Hunt's name. With that information and his IMF mole, Davian has Julia kidnapped and takes her to Shanghai. If Ethan doesn't deliver the rabbit's foot in 48 hours, Julia will be killed. And with his failure, Brassel arrests Ethan for traitorous acts. But with the help of Musgrave, Ethan escapes, goes to Shanghai, and with the help of his team, he performs a daring leap across skyscrapers and retrieves the rabbit's foot. But he's still captured, and an explosive like the one that killed Ferris is shoved up his nose. Then, Julia is executed in front of him. But it wasn't really Julia! <laughs> it was Davian's head of security, executed for her failure when Davian was captured. Julia is still alive to be used as bait when the IMF mole reveals himself. Not Director Brassel, but in fact Agent Musgrave, who's been working for Davian and is afraid Hunt knows of his duplicity. But Hunt escapes, kills Musgrave, and races to save Julia, but the explosive inside his head causes him great pain. And when he gets there, Davian is waiting for him, planning to kill Julia while Ethan watches. But Ethan fights off the arms dealer, their fight spilling into the city street where Davian is killed by an oncoming car. Then Julia helps turn off the explosive in Ethan's brain through his Thetan therapy. <laughs> or no, he has her electrocute him, shorting out the bomb's timer. Then she uses CPR to revive him. And with Davian and Musgrave's collusion exposed, Ethan is cleared of all charges by his director, and he and Julia head off into married life as credits roll. So that's the plot chronologically, but that's not how the movie goes. This movie steals right from J.J. Abrams' TV playbook, and this was a trope I really got sick of seeing in the 2000s. When this movie came out in 2006, people probably weren't tired of it, but the starting off in an exceptionally shocking and confusing situation, and then after the opening credits scene going something like two days later, and now you're leading up to the buildup and finding out what really happened to get you to that shocking point. Nowadays, when I see it, I'm like, yes, it's a hook, I get it, but it's just now, in my mind, a cliche. Short attention spans. I mean, come on, people are going to flip that channel. There's 499 other ones to watch. So yeah, you always lead with your best scene. And this is a really great scene. Yeah, I feel like this is, when I read a lot of comic books nowadays, this is a crutch they use. They put the best scene at the beginning, and then you flash back. But I gotta say, for that last film, never hooked me, I am hooked right away. I, it helps to have Philip Seymour Hoffman as the bad guy. I don't think we've had a good bad guy in the previous two films. Having Seymour Hoffman, I mean, the guy doesn't look threatening, but just his presence, the way he delivers everything, you know. You get that opening, there's an explosive charge in your brain, you're gonna tell me where this rabbit's foot is by the count of ten, and he he never flinches, no matter how much Ethan begs. And I do love Philip Seymour Hoffman, just in general. I mean, I remember him from, yes, my boyfriend's back. <laughs> 
I didn't know you were going to pull that one out. I'm like, there's a wide variety, flawless. I'm like, you could pick some obscure performances, but that one, okay. Well, I'm thinking of the first time I paid attention to him. I think mine was Patch Adams was the first time I remember him. Happiness for me. Twister, he was a, you know, a real memorable character actor in Twister. And then Boogie Nights is where I started to know him by name instead of by face. Yeah, Boogie Nights began it. But yeah, I'm a fan. I think anyone that likes any cinema can recognize he had some great performances in the 90s, 2000s. He's sorely missed now. But uh, yes, I I feel like if you are going to go for a type of villain that was all head games, and he's playing one right here in the opening, yeah, there's a real menace to him. I think he just had won the Oscar, too, or would win the Oscar this year for Capote. Yeah, he was way creepy in this. I mean, he's got that voice, just that very calm, monotonous voice that just comes across so creepy with his inflections, too. And I just... I think for once, Tom Cruise has a worthy villain. I agree. I don't think John Foyt was a very good mastermind. And the guy last time, yeah, not whoever Wolverine. that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The fact that we don't even know his name, character or actor, says a lot. <laughs> oh, Doe Gray Scott, isn't it? Uh, you're right. Why do you remember that? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm the fan of the series. It's his job. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, but yeah, neither of them were supreme actors. Here, Philip Seymour Hoffman is an actor who I think is of the stature to pull off being an antagonist to Tom Cruise. And really, let's look at this cast. As I said, one of the requirements was there needed to be other people to draw other than the possibly toxic Tom Cruise. They weren't sure exactly how much... I mean, War of the Worlds was a huge hit. It was Tom Cruise's biggest opener ever. They weren't sure if he still had it, though, after the YouTube video of Couch Jumping. Uh, For the record, though, this one beat War of the Worlds and became his best opener of all time. Yeah, and he heavily promoted it. I remember, I never saw the movie, but I remember the promotion of this movie. I felt like he was doing acrobatics at every city in the world. I mean, he went on a a marathon tour pushing and and acting like the Tom Cruise from Mission Impossible 2. Yeah, they actually included, I watched all the bonus features for this, They included like an hour of press junkets around the world or just him with crowds. I couldn't believe that in 2006 or 7 when the Blu-ray was released, they left in him laughing about a girl holding a sign, Tom can jump on my couch anytime. It's a relief to see that this is actually a dramatic Tom Cruise performance. And I want to give him a compliment. I think he's every bit as good as Philip Seymour Hoffman is here. I like him. I like the way that he's bartering, trying to, you know, say, I already gave you the rabbit's foot. And then begging and then getting angry and and matching him every every step of the countdown. I feel like we're watching two actors go at it. And, it, and that's what makes the scene so good. We buy both sides. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I'll say Cruz is at the same level as Hoffman here, but that's probably because I'm a little biased against Cruz. But I do agree, Stuart. Like, I feel there's danger here. I feel he's he's a pretty good match for that performance. He, he's forceful and then he's begging like you could tell he's not in control, which is nice to see Cruz not in charge. Yeah, I was definitely thinking about some of the things Stuart had said last week when I was watching this movie, you know, about how Ethan never screws up. Ethan does everything right. He's constantly the best. And that was irritating you. And Ethan definitely makes some mistakes here. This is not, this is not Tom Cruise has all the right moves. 
Yeah, humbled. I like the performances where he is humbled. Jerry Maguire was a humbled performance. It was someone who was arrogant, who had to relearn his craft. And I feel like that's happening here. He is learning how to be a movie star again after hiring his sister as his press agent and watching it all go to hell. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, there's others around this cast who are just great. Lawrence Fishburne. I would make it a point to see a Larry Fishburne movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I generally like him. He's given some terrible performances, but I, I'm not going to focus on the negative. But yeah, you got some reputable people in this cast. I'm going to argue almost none of them make any impact. The only one that makes impact is Michelle Monaghan. I mean, it is about Cruise and his wife here, and everyone else is decorative. This series is still about Tom Cruise, but it's a humbled Cruise as opposed to a, you know, wild man Cruise. Yeah, I'll say that the first half, I feel there's more of a team, but this film's going to give it a reason to be a solo cruise film, which, good. I'm glad there's a reason. If this is supposed to be a team movie, but we're just going to focus on one character, at least give it a reason. And they do that through this love story, which I don't hate. And that's probably because I like some of the humor here when he's reading lips and, you know, he's talking about his boring job at the Department of Transportation when we really know, come on, he didn't really give it up. So so I like some of the humor going on here during this cocktail party. I also like the cocktail party quite a bit. It felt a little cheeky. It is certainly of a totally different tone, more alias, less Mission Impossible. I mean, I've watched a lot of Mission Impossible TV, 60s and 80s, plus the first two movies so far. This was something else, but I liked it. That said, did his mom die between part one and now, or is he lying? Yeah, I noticed that. Uh, <laughs> she she may have died. She may have had a hard time when she was uh, brought up for, with meth charges, which ironically, Aaron Paul, Jesse Pinkman from Breaking Bad's here as the brother-in-law. <laughs> oh, is that him? Yes, it, yeah, it was. I had to look it up to make sure he has hair in this movie. I would have said he's going by an alias, but he's still using Ethan Hunt. So you're right. I don't know why they can't trace it back. But she's really out of the business. I mean, she's not even an analyst or an accountant or, or, or someone at IMF in the periphery. I don't know how he met her. Maybe he finally had to go get stitches or something. (laughs) She's just a nurse. She's just a nurse at a hospital in D.C. And that somehow they met. I love the fact it's implied that their, like, courtship involved jumping out of, like, helicopters or something. I'm like, of course it did. Look at what he did to Katie. (laughs) (laughs) What did he do to Katie? Oh, he shuttled her around. That whole marriage was, I think they were shot out of a cannon when they took their vows. (laughs) Yeah, I I was definitely thinking Top Gun, though, when it's revealed he's a trainer, because that was the whole thing of Top Gun is for some reason, Maverick didn't want to fight in real combat. He wanted to sit back home and train the others. So now that he was the trainer of IMF, I'm like, well, we never did get Top Gun, too. I guess we could take it like this. He's riding a motorcycle enough in this one. And let's point out, I mean, it's he's 45 years old. I mean, he is probably the same age as Tom Skerritt or, or close to it in Top Gun. So he still looks youthful. We still think of him as the young Maverick. But, I mean, it is age appropriate that he would start mentoring other people and that this is all going to be hinged. The only thing that gets him to step away from his marriage is that his own student is the one that's gone missing. If it were just an agent that was in trouble in Germany, I don't think he'd go. I agree. He almost turns down this mission. And I do like how he gets called at the party and he has to throw out the ice and come up with an excuse to leave. I mean, the domestic kind of squabbles. It's, again, a trope I've seen a lot. I mean, it goes 
the best instance of this is not Mission Impossible 3, it's True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie yeah. Lee Curtis. But if this is a PR move to get people to like Tom Cruise again by showing this domestic stuff, I just want to say compliments to whoever his PR person is. It's working here. I'm buying all this. I'm liking this character so much more than last week. I mean, they even have like women weighing in here where they're like, I'd marry him. I mean, they're really selling it hard before <laughs> we get to any spy stuff. It's we need to sell him as a normal, likable, bankable, sane individual. And yeah, it, it works. It's the Tom Cruise I liked from 10 years ago. That said, the movie started with Julia being shot in the head. Well, we don't know if she was shot in the head. We hear a gun go off. Because I, I am wondering, there's that tension there. Is Luther going to come in and shoot Hoffman in the head at that last second? When when are we going to catch up with that opening scene? Yeah, but I was thinking about the time James Bond got married and how his wife died pretty <laughs> soon after. True. I'm like Luther in this movie. This whole movie, Luther's like, we can't get married. We're spies. It never works out. I tried living with a girl twice. It doesn't work out. Luther is my Greek choir on the screen there. He's saying <laughs> everything I'm thinking. Yep, I agree. And he is the only returning crew member. We've seen him in both of the previous films. I don't think his role is expanded here. He's just a little more cynical. Well, he is the team leader now. Like when they go to Germany to rescue Agent Ferris, he is the one in charge. Again, it's not Cruz, which was a surprise to me. I guess he was a trainer. Why would they put him in charge? But Luther is calling the shots. And I really like being Rames in this role. He's always a joyous presence for me. In part two, I think I actually liked him better than Cruz, even though he did so little. And I liked him a lot in part one, too. I am very pleased that he continues to return to this series. But if Cruz isn't romancing you, and I don't think he wants to date Ving, then I think that the, none of the team ever really matters. I mean, can you think about anyone in the previous two movies or in this team that's assembled that you really, they get their own moment, you know, where they really stand out and you're like, ah, yeah, Cruz is just one storyline of many. I I like that Cruz is the main storyline, but I mean, couldn't we learn something about Declan or Zen? I mean, they're cool enough, but... What's there to say about them, given their roles here? He flies a pilot, or he flies a chopper, and she can do some kung fu. Yeah, Declan gets the short, short straw in this yeah. one, really. I mean, Maggie Q gets her scenes in here, yeah. where she gets some points of action. But Declan, he, the actor sits in a chair while somebody flies a helicopter really well. But we get nothing out of him. At least we get some banter and some fun out of the other two. But you're right. The only character with a personal storyline is Ethan, and he has two. He has, I want to get married to this woman I love, and I want to uh, rescue my student. Because when I'm thinking, who would I cast as a female super spy, I always think of Felicity's hair. <laughs> <laughs> you keep calling her Felicity, but she has spent three years on the Americans playing a Soviet in 1980s suburbia, pretending to be an American. I, I actually do watch that show. And so seeing her as a, a killer and a, someone that can fire a gun, that's actually my go-to. I, I didn't watch her in the Felicity years. Keep in mind, that was seven years after Mission Impossible 3. Yeah, but this is my first time watching the movie, so... <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying, that's what I knew her as when this film came out. I've seen her in stuff since. I actually think she owes J.J. Abrams a lot for resurrecting the career that he made very stereotypical the first time around. She tried to break out of it, but worked kind of sporadically. After Mission Impossible, she's worked very regularly. Yep. 
and she gets the what uh, Emilio Estevez role here. Someone's got to <laughs> die at the beginning, and it's her. She drew the short straw. I really love her death. Oh, uh, the way her eyes go. Different. Yeah. Yes, the eyeball. I often say that deaths aren't great in PG thirteen movies, and I want it to be understood. It's not that I want more blood. Having red corn syrup does not appease me. It needs to feel something. I need to be moved. And when her eye goes wonky like that, you know how I am with eyes. Yeah, they go different directions. I jumped when I saw that. Yeah, I've seen this movie once before. I didn't see it in theaters because Marjorie really hates Tom Cruise. (laughs) But I did watch it when it was new on video. And I remembered one thing, and that was Carrie Russell's eyeball. And it still freaked me out on this viewing. Yeah, it's, it is a violent death, and you really, she doesn't have much time to make an impact, but you think about her for the rest of the movie, partly yeah. because Cruz is going to get the same bomb put in his nostril. And I do like the action building up to her rescue. I hated all that kung fu stuff last week. I didn't buy it with Cruz. I like, there's a lot of bullets flying, but I like, there's more of a, I don't know if you ever played like Metal Gear Solid. It's all about slinking around. And I feel like they, they give that lip service, at least as spies, that they're going to try to be quiet until they have to set off the explosions to distract everyone. I buy Cruz more in that role. And, and so I like this whole attempt to rescue Agent Ferris. I don't entirely follow the rescue because they're also stealing some laptops and there's a lot going on. I didn't know Zen was supposed to be stealing those. I, I was thinking of Captain America, too, and Black Widow was like downloading something from the boat that Captain America <laughs> didn't know about. Yeah, that I kind of had a similar thought. But what I really like is after they rescue her. Because she has that bomb in her head and she's screaming something's wrong and they're trying to figure it out. Tom Cruise has his super spy gear analyzing her head. But that's not the only action. In the past two Mission Impossible movies, as well as so many other movies, there's one beat of action at a time. And it would be a helicopter chase and then it would be the bomb in her head. That J.J. Abrams, and it's a lot of what he did in Star Trek 2009, you've got One person dealing with one thing while somebody else is dealing with another. The pilot is doing these aeronautics because there's an attack chopper coming after them and they're just going through a windmill farm. Yeah, that was everywhere. Yeah. Practical. Real helicopter, real windmills. Wow, okay. Yeah, and that was what I was going to cite. I was trying to think of what this was reminding me of, and the closest was Bourne. You know, the Bourne franchise, they were two installments in by this point. They were really known for bringing real world. They went to the location, and you know, yes, I mean, this has always been a travelogue. James Bond really goes to the location, and Ethan Hunt has gone to many locations before, but this is one where it feels like, yeah, they're really there. They're not faking it with blue screen and they really want to capture what's unique about a certain place and so the fact that we're in that windmill farm it just yeah it really cemented as being very particular and very exciting yeah i'm with the vibe of this movie at this point i noticed that with this one too because in this one they're gonna go to the vatican and they're gonna go to shanghai and you know what the last movie took place primarily in sydney But because it was always at that guy's house or at a racetrack, I didn't feel they used Australia to the point where it felt like that kind of travelogue, that spotlight on the city. The Mm -hmm. first one, it took, yeah, they went to London and a couple other places, but it still didn't feel like it because it was mostly soundstage. 
Here, this was the first time I got that Bourne feeling, that James Bond feeling of, look at the city we're in, we're going to immerse the film in this culture for this time. It really is like a cruise ship that's going to stop in a few different cities and really give you glorious travel log looks at it. John Woo, Brian De Palma, they never want you to forget about the camera trickery. They're they're always kind of boasting what they can do. They want to be the stars of Mission Impossible. Here, I think J.J. is simply allowing his star to be the focal point and to using the assets around him to best make him look good. Which is why he got the job. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, don't forget Tom Cruise hired him. Yes, right. Yeah, but he's doing a good job. I can imagine that Cruz was grinning ear to ear during the dailies. He he does look good here. Does he ever not grin ear to ear? <laughs> Eyes wide shot. Well, nobody was grinning there, including me in the audience. But now that she's dead, the mission, as it were, begins. And it's kind of a weird transition that they go from this rescue mission to now looking for this arms dealer who she was undercover trying to get close to. And I mean, one of the big things about Mission Impossible is if you are captured or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. Which I love that they acknowledge why they're not disavowing her here, because they need the knowledge from her. Yeah. I was wondering that. Why haven't they disavowed her? Why is there a rescue mission? They answered that. Yeah. And so now Cruz is back in it and he's going to try to catch the guy who killed his protege. But first, he has to have a quickie with Julia at the hospital. Yeah, he's going to get married. He's not going to wait. You know, he's lying to his wife or his fiance. He's saying, oh, I'm going to Texas. I've got to do this thing for my boring traffic job. He's He obviously is not going to be able to tell her he's on top secret spy missions. So to counter that, to let her know that he's committed and to let the audience know, more importantly, that he's not going to go have a James Bond fling in some European country, he is going to marry her with fake rings in a rather charming scene here in the hospital. And yet I still can't think of her except from the next Mission Impossible girl, you know? I mean, the way there's Bond girls, I figure she's just the next MI girl. Bond got married once too. I know how this movie started. I'm just waiting for that shoe to drop. Yeah, I think they might kill her. I I, I was thinking a lot about Majesty's Secret Service. I do like the scene on the rooftop, though, where he is lying to her, and finally he gives up lying to her and just is like, do you trust me? Because I don't want to lie to you. Just, can you trust me? And he does have to marry her to get that unconditional trust, but I think when he leaves, she has that. Yep. And of course, also before he goes out on this mission, Simon Pegg shows up. I thought he was supposed to be a big deal. Like, yeah. this had been... <laughs> talked up like Simon Pegg was a big part of this and all. He's barely in this movie. We can talk about everything he's going to do in this movie. He gets a couple phone calls. He traces something on the back of a stamp. I don't feel like this was a great role for him. It felt like he showed up on set for literally two days and was all of his scenes were shot on the same set and then he went back home. And I think a lot of them, he was like the only person there because Tom Cruise is only in one scene where he's in frame with him. Yeah, he's working in the lab, and he stays in that lab the entire film. 
He's got one kind of cool monologue about an anti-god, this concept that one day someone's going to invent an unstoppable force, and maybe that's what the MacGuffin of this movie, the rabbit's foot, is going to be. We don't know. We'll never find out what that is. It's J.J. Abrams, after all. He likes his secrets. (laughs) But it's a relatively benign appearance. As, As a blood and ice cream fan, I was disappointed there was less of the cheeky Brit that I like. Yeah, I think at this point he was still in that blood and ice cream mold, though. It would take him a couple movies to break out. I mean, this was shortly after Shaun of the Dead, around the time of Hot Fuzz. I think that it's this relationship with J.J. that really helped him to grow and, you know, get Star Trek and all of that. Yeah, he has his moments at the end where he's guiding crews around on the phone. But at the beginning, I, I was surprised how little he does. He pulls an email off of a stolen hard drive so they know where to go next. And that's about it. Yeah, I mean, he's Q. I think Stuart called it out. <laughs> yeah, Q, that's fine. I, I don't know, even Q, I felt like he did more here. I mean, what do they learn from the back of the stamp? I don't really know. It basically just allows them to suspect that, yeah, Lawrence Fishburne may be uh, working with the bad guy. It starts the suspicion because, well, part of the formula I'm now seeing develop in these Mission Impossible movies is Cruz always has to go rogue. (laughs) He can never actually just (laughs) do what he's supposed to do. He never follows orders. He has to break away in order for us to like him. He has to go out on his own entirely, which is why he's such a bad fit for a team. But but that's how they always have to... set it up here. He does have this agent helping him, though, back at the headquarters, Musgrave, who gave him the original mission to go to Berlin to try to save Ferris. He's aiding Ethan and his team. And yeah, he has the team. But can I just speak to the secretary of IMF one-on-one for a minute? You really have some personnel morale issues. I think you need to get some team building going on, maybe take them bowling, maybe a potluck, because in three out of three movies, you have a traitor in your midst. John Voight in the first one, I guess he set the pattern after the entire TV series. They were an unflappable force. But John Voight, Doug Ray Scott, and then now this guy, Crudup, is an evil IMF agent. You said you saw the formula of Ethan going rogue. He has to go rogue because everybody's against him at his job. Right, yes. I I don't know that that works for me. I think I would like it just to see one. Maybe we'll get it. But <laughs> just to see one where the team just does what they're supposed to and nobody tries to trick them into doing something bad. But yes, you've always got to suspect, you know, the paranoia. It's a part of a political thriller. And although this is not very political, it is playing on that conspiracy-minded thing. I mean, J.J. loves conspiracies. So, I mean, an alias, I never watched it, but did Jennifer Garner, didn't she work for people that tried to have her killed? I mean... Yeah, there was always that internal espionage stuff. Yes, exactly. It's spies. They cheat on each other. They kill each other. It's it's just a thing they're going to do here. But I don't, I don't know that I needed this. I mean, Musgrave is an interesting one. I think by the end of it, he's going to give a monologue that makes him a more unique bad guy. I mean, maybe bad guy in quotes there, but uh, he, he's got good intentions at least. But it's going to be another game of, is it him or is it Lawrence Fishburne? But I guess they don't tell Musgrave that they're going to Rome. That For some reason, they know not to tell him. That's why Davian, I guess, doesn't have a heads up. Hoffman's character is going to get caught now. Yeah, because this is where he goes rogue. Later, Davian will take credit and say he knew. I've had bosses like that, too. But (laughs) 
at this point, the only one who knows where Ethan is going is really Simon Pegg. That's the only one back home. And honestly, I did think Larry Fishburne was the, the mole because, I mean, you brought in John Voight. He was the mole in one. I guess Doug Gray Scott was the second biggest star in part two. So he's the mole. You bring in Lawrence Fishburne. I figure the reason you're bringing him in is to be duplicitous. Yeah. So they did fool me in that way. Yeah, I, I believe it was him, sure. Yeah, at one point I figure out who it is, but I'm going with Brassel at this point, that he's the mole. It doesn't really interest me. I guess that's what I'm trying to say here, is that I don't really care who's trying to get crews from the inside. I'm more about the missions here. I, if they can give me a, a good mission, that's enough. And going to the Vatican, they kind of do a greatest hits here. Right? They break out masks, it gets on a wire. I love that they show how the masks are made this time. They bust out a 3D printer. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Yeah, the it's a more realistic take. I feel like, you know, De Palma and Wu were never interested in naturalism, but that has become in vogue. Again, Jason Bourne, I think, made everyone. James Bond would have to follow suit, too. You had to be a little bit more realistic. I think 9-11, in some ways. We just wanted to take it a little bit more seriously. It, it, it was no longer just kid stuff games. I think Abrams brings just a verisimilitude. It comes from television, really. I see this... A lot of things I see here, I also think about with Joss Whedon, you know, another TV showrunner moved feature film. On TV, you need to explain things a little bit more. First, to fill up the time. Second, to satisfy the audience. I mean, yes, J.J. likes his mysteries, but his mysteries are always big mysteries. The little stuff is always explained away. So I think that's just a little flourish, the 3D mask printing and all of that. They also use it to build suspense, though. We're going to see a chip that Ethan puts on his throat to mask his voice. They did that in part two. Yeah, that's okay. a greatest hit. I, I didn't feel like they played it up as a big tension builder like they do here once they're taking Davy in the bathroom. But I have to ask one question. Is there a worse line in this film than when Tom Cruise rappels up the wall of the Vatican, <laughs> looks at the camera that says Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. <laughs> I missed what he said the first time. I rewound it because I thought it was going to be something cool or something important. And that, yeah, that's what it was. All of a sudden, I thought I was watching like Spy Hard or something. What when he it? repels down the wall talking about greatest hits, he does that same pose as the first one yeah, when he's doing the yeah. wire stuff. I thought he was going to say Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Like, I, I thought he was going to go on with the nursery rhyme. <laughs> what is yeah. with this line? I mean, it's a code word. It's just to let you know he's in place. Could he have picked a different one? Sure, but that one is one everyone's going to get. Okay, that was the code word for I'm up here? Okay, yeah. I didn't even get that. I thought he broke the fourth wall and was just <laughs> reciting nursery rhymes. <laughs> now, that would be something, but no, I think it was just... A, you remember, there is a team here, barely, but there's a hot chick in a cool car, and then there's the DHL driver who's going to be running around in the sewer or whatever. I mean, they have two other people that need to know what he's doing. Or three. Is Luther here, too? Luther's still sitting back at the computer. I keep forgetting about him. He scuba-dived in. That's right, yes. I don't feel like they're ever doing anything real cool. Maybe Maggie Q. You know, she's very sexy in that dress, and she gets yeah. to be flirty, but you're noticing her for her sexualized way of coming off, not because 
what she's doing is really that impressive. Again, it's the cruise show. Well, that is what's impressive. That's what she's supposed to be doing. I mean, come on, in any film, someone spills wine on your shirt. That's a setup. Something bad's going to happen. Sure. Yeah, she sends him into the bathroom where they're waiting to knock him out and whisk him away. Now, you mentioned TV shows. I feel like this is a anti-24, isn't it? I mean, 24 is a series where Jack Bauer, because he had 24 hours to solve whatever terrorist plot was going on, basically... Their shorthand was bring somebody into a room, slap them around, and they'll eventually tell you, right? And it it got in trouble. I feel like that series, after a while, was the face of endorsing torture when we got in trouble with Abu Ghraib and all of that stuff. It was suddenly, we were a nation that tortured people to get answers. And I feel like this movie... They take Philip Seymour Hoffman away. They get him to the airplane, and Cruz does some pretty horrible things to him. It's not quite waterboarding, but it the guy never breaks. And I think Cruz feels like he went too far. Well, Cruz, I know he doesn't believe in psychological drugs, but he might have needed some, because <laughs> why does he go so hot on this guy? I mean, he is a trained agent. Because this is the guy who killed the agent he trained. Right. Yeah, it's personal. Yeah, but still, I think he goes too far too fast. This guy's, he's like, what's your name? Do you have someone you love? Well, I I mean, come on, Hoffman's character, Davian, and this guy is threatening how he keeps his cool. Like, when he's hanging outside of a plane almost, upside down in that chair, and he's just like, what's your name? What's your name? And then you got Luther yelling Ethan's name. I'm like, oh, this is why it all goes bad. Like, I am scared of this villain. I love that I feel like there is a threatening villain for once in this series. Yeah, I love the way he's just so cool in the face of this. But I gotta believe that, I mean, Cruz doesn't know. I didn't know that he was going to be broken out. I barely remember this movie from when I first saw it back in 06. So I'm thinking, first of all, they caught him. Is the movie done already? This is shorter than the last two. But I'm also thinking that you don't need to hang him out of an airplane because if you get him back in the cell, well, he's done. You know, whatever he knows, whatever he's doing, he's in a cell, he's done. He'll probably trade information for something to not be put in a hole for the rest of his life. I understand his personal, but maybe it's just Cruz's acting here. I just don't buy his performance in this scene as to why he's so angry. Well, I go with it. Again, it's him being flawed, fallible. Finally, he did something wrong. Finally, he gets a moment where he has gone too far. And yes, it's going to jeopardize his home life. And I think that's the point here. I think that this is a rebuttal to Jack Bauer 24. I think Abrams is making a commentary about the other spy show from the 2000s. I think this is answering so many of the objections you have brought up, Stuart, with Tom Cruise's character in this series thus far is, yeah, he's going to make a mistake here and he's going to have to pay for it now. Although it's Luther who really f***s up by shouting his name. He has been successfully anonymous. He would have found out his name anyway. There's a mole that would have told him. True, but it's after Ving screams, Ethan, don't do this, Ethan, that when he does get pulled back up in the plane, he's like, Ethan. I love that scene. You know, it's a little strange. I got to say, it's refreshing in some ways. Usually there's these... 
plots that are high stakes. The world is going to blow up unless he stops it in 20 seconds or whatever. Here, this is just an arms dealer, and they just want to get some names from him. Uh, There's no hanging threat that is going to jeopardize the entire world. I mean, there's this rabbit's foot thing, but that's, by calling it the rabbit's foot, they're telling us it's not really important what it does. Don't think about the ramifications. And Davian doesn't want to set it off. I think he just wants to sell it. Yes, I agree. So it doesn't feel like so many spy things, like this is building up to one giant feat that Tom Cruise must stop here. Yes. Instead, it's, yeah, we just got a guy. Later, he's compared to weeds. There's tons of guys like this out in the world. And if you capture one, two more will spring up. So it's not that big a deal that they catch him. It is more personal this time. And yes, it is going to get him in trouble because... You didn't know? I knew this guy was going to get away, and quickly. I didn't know who was going to bust him out, and I didn't know it would be so spectacular, but I could have predicted this scene on the bridge. Well, I figured he could do stuff from a jail cell. I knew the movie wasn't really over, but I didn't know that he'd be broken out immediately. He knew, but I didn't know. Good scene. I got to say, I like, uh, I think this is even a drone, right? There's real drones here. Yep. Yeah, this is before drones were, I think, in the cultural zeitgeist, yeah. Well, they were in the news. I mean, we knew that we were using them to bomb Al-Qaeda. They became popular in our Middle East wars, but... It was a newer thing, though, yeah. Definitely. It was cool to see them in a movie, in one of the earlier uses. I didn't know much about this movie, but I do remember they did this in the trailer. I remember there were scenes of like when the missile is shot and Cruz blows sideways against the car. I, remember I think that's s- another thing that you're going to get in every Mission Impossible is yes. Cruz getting thrown by an explosion. Can't remember if that happened in two, but it definitely happened in one. I felt like it always happened in two. That movie felt like <laughs> nothing but a nonstop explosion. But it was slow motion, so it didn't have the same impact. Yeah. Sending him straight into my face always. But yes, here, yeah, it's, it's a good one. I... I think this is yet another tactile, really good action moment. And and again, another moment where Ethan fails. I got to say, is he ever succeeding? Really? <laughs> I mean, I guess they did get the guy out, but only to fail. Very cleverly. I, I did like him when he's playing Davian. My, actually, my favorite bit of Philip Seymour Hoffman's acting in this whole film, because he's pretty one note, and I can't decide if he's phoning it in or if he's just creepy. But when they put the mask on Ethan... And they do this morph where it goes from this rubbery mask and then it's actually mm-hmm. Philip Seymour Hoffman. But Philip Seymour Hoffman now has to act like he's Ethan Hunt because it's Ethan in a mask and talking to Luther about how he got married. I mean, Hoffman pulls it off. He's got a shit eating grin and a big sparkly <laughs> eyes like Tom Cruise. Yeah, I don't know if this is face off here. I didn't see face off, but I didn't get an incredible mimicry of one or the other. It's a short scene, but I appreciated it. You know, they're they're evenly matched. They're finally getting to play off of one another a little bit here. And that is the best. You wish they did it more. I feel like this movie kind of runs out of ideas now. Now it's just, we're going to kidnap your wife and make you do something. And this is finally a ticking clock. Yeah, it's an actual ticking clock this time where they're going to tell us that it's going down and they got to get things done. I, again, I think somehow they traveled to the future, listened to all of Stuart's complaints, and <laughs> <laughs> fixed it here. Or maybe other people had the same resentments I did, <laughs> but didn't want to say anything to the big, incredible star because he always made money. But now that he's on the ropes, they can go, you know what's annoying about you, Tom? Let's turn this down. I do feel like, so now he's going to get caught by IMF. 
Brassel's going to have him locked up. As soon as Musgrave starts doing that lip reading thing, he starts just mouthing where Ethan needs to go. And he's like, Shanghai, apartments, this. I'm like, oh, obviously he's the mole. Because if Brassel was the mole, why would he lock Ethan up? He wants Davian to get the rabbit's foot. But now it's Musgrave helping him to get that rabbit's foot. So now, now I know who the actual mole is. This is the scene that gave it away. I figured it out here too, because the one thing that really confused me when I thought... Bressel was the mole is when he's leaning over Ethan and says, I would bleed on the flag to keep the stripes red. I'm like, that doesn't seem like much of a double agent line. That seems very patriotic. What is he saying there? Is he really playing his double agency to a hilt? And then when the mouthing starts, I'm like, ah, I get it. You got me. Good job. I still didn't know he was the big bad. I I guess I just wasn't thinking about it that hard, but I still thought he might be an... I wasn't thinking about Billy Crudup. No one thinks about Billy Crudup. He's, <laughs> even Billy Crudup sometimes wakes up, who am I? <laughs> yes. I just thought he was a, a functional character that was to get us from A to B or whatever. So for what he does at this moment is he gets Tom Cruise out of captivity. So he tried to rescue his wife, but she was whisked away at the hospital first. And you'd think they would have security on anybody that was going to get married to an agent, but they don't. And Or maybe they, they did, but it, it was called off. Who knows? I'm not going to overthink it. I did chuckle when Ethan's running away from IMF and he exits through the Department of Transportation. I thought yes. that was a pretty good joke. Yes, to we are family, no less. But yes. Uh, they, I didn't like that so much. <laughs> I actually like the soundtrack in this. I mean, it's a very, you know, you said they're traveling to the future. I think they traveled to the past or turned on some AM stations, but the soundtrack <laughs> does work for me. Yeah, I, I, all over soup to nuts. I can't really think about anything that's problematic other than I just kind of feel like these are obvious notes from this point on. I'm not saying figuring out who's the bad guy is obvious, but more just like what they're going to do. You can kind of predict that. Well, I mean, they told us we're going to get back to that opening scene after he goes to Shanghai and does this impossible thing that actually is fairly easy for him to do. We don't even see it, really. It's largely spent with two people in the van waiting for him to come out and praying. Yeah, I was really surprised we didn't see it. We get to see him do that big leap. And as somebody who has a fear of heights, I was pretty <laughs> impressed with this. And the way he's sliding down, I'll admit, my heart was racing. I'm like, how's he going to stop? The glass is slippery. I didn't like how when he was swinging, how that was shot. I don't know. There was something. It just wasn't dynamic enough. But once he landed on that roof and was sliding down, I did like that. That was there was tension there. Yeah. I thought I missed something. I was watching this pretty late at night, but I felt very alert. I had a Red Bull. So when he comes out of the building and has this like biohazard canister, I'm like, did I pass out? Did I miss something? Where did he get that from? But just like what the rabbit's foot itself is, JJ doesn't care. He doesn't want us to care. He might have as well as just called it the MacGuffin. Yeah. And I do think that's kind of the joke with these Mission Impossible, especially as you go further on and on. Like that first one, when you're going into the CIA, they tell you every single thing that you can't trip or every alarm you can't set off. Here, they do all that, and then they just cut and cut and go to it. They'll give us one big espionage scene, but the, the, I feel like that's kind of a joke they want to do, too, is set it up, and then you just jump out the window with the device. If it were a different series, maybe we would care about the mission, but 
this is a series I now realize it is always about Tom Cruise. It is always about building it up and making him, you know, viable for his audience. And so, yeah, what he's doing just does not matter here. Only that, yeah, it's redemption and that he's willing to turn it in. You know, he's done this one before. Whatever it is, we know it's lethal, but he's willing to turn it over for a chance to fix it later down the road, kick the can down the road, but having a chance to save his wife, who is the seconds are counting down. It's the knock list all over again, isn't it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, what's her name with the virus? Nyla. Well, he didn't intentionally turn that one over. But yeah, I'm a little bit shocked that he's doing that. But I'm excited. I mean, we're I know we're getting close to the beginning of the movie. An hour and a half in, we're almost back <laughs> at the beginning. Yeah, they're telling us. They're counting down. He's got five minutes. He's got two minutes. They can't get a cell signal. And then they get one. I, I like that the clock matters here now. That's causing tension for me. I want us, I know where this is going, and I, I'm not on the edge of my seat, but I'm invested this time, whereas last time I wanted to hit that forward button so bad. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, it's just a different show this time, but uh, emphasis show. I do feel like this could be an episode in a TV series, and I do feel like... Everything we're watching actually could be cut down to an hour episode. I, I'm feeling a slightly impatient. I'll be honest with you. I'm enjoying the movie. I think everything is better. But at the same time, I kind of wish we would get to that scene with him and his wife a little sooner than we do. I think I'm having the opposite reaction. I'm having fun, but the ticking clock is getting to me so much that I'm anxious for resolution. I want to know what happens next. It turned out... For most of this movie, I wasn't even thinking about that opening scene. But once we got here, now I'm like, yes, let's find out what happened. Who got shot? Is she really dead? I'm pretty sure she's dead. They got me. I They show Davy and shoot Julia, and I believe they actually did it. I, I'm like, wow, they, they did it. They killed her. Isn't that a cheat, though? Is it a cheat? She's wearing a mask. I mean, it's actually the translator that screwed up at the Vatican. Uh, it's not a cheat. I thought they were following the template of Bond. I thought that if a spy mar gets married, the wife is going to be a target and killed. Right. But since it wasn't the wife, that's what I was saying was a cheat. It's a abuse of the mask. <laughs> well, after that last film, they cannot abuse that mask enough. Well, if you're going to get us invested in a relationship and then have him watch her die, it is a cheat to go, ooh, she was just in a mask. It's I don't think it's a cheat. I think it's, it, A, it's a good way for them to know for sure he delivered the right thing. And B, it's a shock moment. It's, it was a shock to me that she didn't die. Honestly, I thought she was dead meat. I thought they would kill her. So the fact that he has a chance of saving her, once I realized she was alive somewhere five miles away, I, I knew they weren't going to do that. But in this moment, I was prepared for it. I thought it would go this route. And I do love when Musgrave like sits down and he's like, it's complicated. And yeah, I feel like you say you don't see a lot of conspiracies here, Stuart. I do feel like this is where we get it. It's we got to get in bed with the terrorist because they're going to get us to the bigger terrorist. We got to be friends with Davian because he's yeah, he's a weed and there's bigger weeds he could get us to. It's, it's this complicated relationship we have to have with the bad guys now to get to the real bad guys. Right. There's no real central bad. It's Philip Seymour Hoffman by default because he's the one in this plot. But truly what they're saying is it's the game itself. It's the fact that you have to let them win in order to ultimately catch them. You have to give them the illusion that they get what they want, give them the rabbit's foot, have them sell it, and down the line we'll actually get the person that bought it. And, and that's the real victory to celebrate. 
It's one that Cruz would have made. I mean, honestly, it's not so heinous. It just, it sounds heinous because you realize the lives that are at stake. But Cruz himself, I feel like he did <laughs> try to sell a terrorist those knock lists. I mean, he he has played with fire before. He will use the real thing in order to bait out the enemy. <laughs> yeah, it's true to character. I think I would feel more about it if we were told what the rabbit's foot is. I mean, Simon Pegg gives us that big speech. And at, when he's describing it, I'm like, oh, is that what the rabbit's foot is? But because... JJ's feeling a little smug and keeping it to himself. To me, all right, I don't know what it is. Let the terrorists have it. I don't give a shit. I don't know. I like the line where they say, you know, they had to go through this whole charade because they can't just open it up to fig- to verify it. It's yeah. that dangerous. I, to me, that tells me enough. It's it's anthrax. It's some kind of biochemical thing. Who yeah. knows? It, it is a true MacGuffin here. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I feel like, much like Lost, the more secrets would get answered, it may actually prove disappointing. So leave them asking why. You know, maybe they will tell you next time. That's kind of how they leave it when it finally gets back to headquarters here. But the point of this whole mission has been to be a spy and a good husband. And that's what Ethan is going to do once he realizes his wife is down the street. He's going to do some incredible running, his best running. Oh, that, that those <laughs> hands are flat. That back is straight. No. Oh, no, the back isn't straight. He's actually leaning back like he's curving his spine backwards. <laughs> I've never seen a man bend this way. I, I actually did wonder if they sped the film up a little. He is running that fast in this film. Yeah, and he's it, karate chopping the air like it ain't nobody's business. No, it's, and, they, and the camera lingers. They follow him. Somehow <laughs> they have something in the water. I don't know if they built a, a, a rig or, or what, or, or if it's on a crane, but they're able to keep up. And uh, it's it's just a great shot. But the rest of it, eh, it goes the way you think. You know, she saves. She gets to kill some people with a gun, proving she's got a little spy in her. Maybe True Lies style. She'll join them in missions. She literally had a little spy in her because Tom Cruise is short. <laughs> I get it. I yeah, get we it. got it. <laughs> okay. I, I had to make sure that was the joke you were making. I'm like, is she married in real life to a spy? I didn't. I don't know anything about this actress. <laughs> I do have to say the one thing that stretched credibility for me, and, and it's all set up, you know, Ethan's going to have his fight with Davian, and and that was kind of disappointing. He just gets run over by a car. Yeah. Oh, I hate this ending. I honestly believe, and I know, Stuart, you said you're getting impatient. Given the way this film ends, I feel like there needed to be another act in this. He needed to rescue his wife and get the bomb out of his head and have that but then he needed to go on the offense. He needed to mount an attack and get this guy. That's what I would have found satisfying. That Davian was just there where his wife was and is just going to punch him around and then gets hit by a car. Yeah, Cruz does this like weird because I guess he's holding his head because that chip has been triggered. But he's doing like this weird, I don't know, look like it was from Karate Kid 2 where he's swinging his elbows to beat up Davian. Yeah, why is he doing that? Is it because his head hurts so much? It must be because, yeah, I always hate when they try to have these clearly outmatched people get a few good ones in. I mean, we just saw this man run. We know he's fit. There's no <laughs> way that Philip Seymour Hoffman is going to get one hit in here. I mean, it's it, the concept is ridiculous. But yeah, they give him the fact that he's ailing here. He's got the bomb. He's got four minutes before his head blows up. And yeah, he's out of it. So even off his game, Tom Cruise on his worst day can take <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman. I'm not buying it. He doesn't need a car to run him over to, to end this fight. So it is a cheap 
cheat that that's the way it goes. But the biggest cheat to me is that Julia, like after a 30 second lesson on how, that's how good a trainer Ethan is. 30 seconds with him telling you how to shoot a gun and you're like, you're a mark pro marksman all of a sudden. <laughs> I did wonder if it was going to be revealed that she was IMF too. I thought they, they could go that way. I feel like in the sequel, she'll be there. I do love when they're walking away. He's like, okay, here's the truth. I work for the Impossible Mission Force. And she's like, come on. It can't really (laughs) have that name. Yeah, I was laughing about that during our first Mission Impossible review. So yeah, I'm glad that JJ is bringing that kind of, again, Greek choir to the screen. Yeah, she is a good... We don't know too much about her, but we like her. She seems normal. She is our entry point. We accept Cruz because she accepts Cruz. And by the end of it, the whole team is like... Slapping her back, hugging. I I really feel like, wow, this is a a different way to end a spy story. Yeah, it was was a weird ending for me that it was like, oh, Rival finally accepted Julia, the non-IMF agent. Like, we know Luther had an issue with her throughout the film, and now they're all palling around with her having a chuckle, and they walk off to their honeymoon. It, It was an odd ending for me. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, It really was kind of weird. I couldn't believe she survived to the end and that they had this like, it reminded me of like the old episodes of Chips. I expected them all to freeze frame with thumbs up to the camera. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, you keep bringing up TV and keep in mind it's JJ, his first movie. I think he's still got a a TV mentality here. This just feels like an episode of a show. Well, is it a show that you would watch the next episode of Jacob Stewart? Do you recommend Mission Impossible 3, Jacob? Yeah, this is a TV show that I would go back to. I I like this simpler plot. It feels like a redo of the first film where they get rid of a lot of those plot holes that that first film have. Like, we're going to have a double agent where you're going to get disavowed, which happens every movie. Won't be surprised if it happens next time. But if... For me, this is more streamlined. I I like the character more here. I like the villain. That's what works for me. Like, if that first Mission Impossible, if it had more Max, that might have worked a little bit better. But this one here, it's it's the strongest in the series so far for me. It it had a lot of tension just right off the bat with that opening. I like the action more here. I I like the simpler storyline. I like that it's personal. It's it's sometimes it's just hard to keep up, especially with these spy films with all these. We're gonna run around the world to get this spy, and then it's this mole, and then this double agent. Uh, I like that it's streamlined here. I like that it's simple because I'm not a particular fan of this franchise. I don't want to have to think too much during two. So yeah, this has been the best so far for me. This is a solid recommend for Mission Impossible 3. Stuart. Yeah, it is a solid recommend and it is the best of the bunch. That said, I do feel like it could be a little more ambitious. You keep talking about what a great villain Hoffman was. Uh, He's a great actor. I don't know if he was a great villain. I don't think he was built to be a great villain. He didn't have a master plot here. He was just an arms dealer that got mad at Cruz and took it out on his wife. So he got what he got. I, I feel like this is TV ambition here. I feel like you could have done this story on the cheap for in 60 minutes and it might have actually had less lulls. I did feel a little impatient with it. But as a career corrective for Cruz, it's exactly where he needs to be. Humble 
giving dramatic performances, grounded, and when he commits to the action, he's still really good. He is the best at what he does. There's a reason why Tom Cruise is a big star. He's still got those qualities, even if he makes mistakes. He doesn't need to fear that. But you say simple is good here. I would like to see a little bit more complexity in the future. I would like to see this tackle a a better storyline. It's fine. It's completely acceptable. The worst you can say about it is it's kind of forgettable, but it's a solid spy movie and I enjoyed it. So recommend. And I'm going to recommend this as well. And I'm going to say that my original prediction and memory is true that these movies keep getting better. Each one in my mind, I know you guys disagreed with me on two, but each one is better than the last for me. I like that this did bring in a good villain. I like that Ethan had a personal stake in it just beyond a woman he just met and banged or he it's his own career. The, this felt more like love than part two did. I think it actually would have worked better if they could have gotten Tandy Newton back. If this was a continuation, it really would have sold me on the love versus, oh, this is just Ethan Hunt's third chick in three movies. But... She wouldn't do it. She had an orbit or something instead, so, okay. <laughs> Boy, I saw what you did there. You threw her under the bus. <laughs> oh, you think you're so good. You go do Norbit. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Yet, I did feel this kind of didn't reach the peak of the last one in terms of action. I There were some nice wire work in Shanghai. The building jumps, a spectacular high point. The breakout scene was very good, but like Stuart said, forgettable. It was good when I was watching it, and when I Mm -hmm. walked away, I didn't remember it. If I'm going to think of the best like breakout scene or card wreck scene like that, this has nothing on what they did in Winter Soldier or something like that. I hope Rogue Nation has no ties to this, because by the time I see it, I won't remember anything in this movie. (laughs) Yeah, it does the character of Ethan and the character of the villain so much better uh, but it, jj i think still had a tv mentality at 150 million to work with but it didn't feel like he was going all out maybe he was afraid of his star getting hurt again cruz did a lot of his own stunts it felt like punches were literally pulled but still the characters make it worth it for me so a solid recommend Yeah, good. I think we're all on the same page. And if you're right, if this trajectory continues, we're going to get a better movie in two weeks. We're going to take another week off. We got to do Ant-Man. Yeah, the the impossible (laughs) mission is getting through this series because of all the interruptions. (laughs) Yeah, Ant-Man. Man, Man, can we just skip it? And I'd rather do Ghost Protocol next week. I I guess it doesn't work that way. I saw six minutes of Ant-Man before Jurassic Park and IMAX. Oh, oh the real reason you saw it in IMAX. Oh, I didn't realize. <laughs> so they released that much footage and people didn't throw tomatoes? It was very much like Guardians. It was literally a character gets out of prison and then a recut trailer. But it looks like it might not be as bad as we think. I'm going in with <laughs> metered expectations. <laughs> Ooh, that is some high praise there. Look, I don't even expect to hate it. I just don't want to watch it. I guess, <laughs> to be brutally honest, it just has no interest to me. None. Zero. Less than Guardians. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, Guardians had a flavor. I mean, I enjoyed Guardians to a point, and then I got tired of the joke. Here, I don't even think they're being very funny. I mean, 
if it's all I'm small jokes, yeah, let's just stick with the small guy in the Mission Impossible movies. Let's just keep going on with the franchise that's working for me because I don't think I want any Ant-Man. That's probably why they showed the scenes they did because it was not I'm small humor. It was other jokes. Okay. So the Paul Rudd helped write the script and the story and starred in it. If you like Paul Rudd, I think you have something to be excited for. If you don't, you probably don't want to watch it. I have liked Paul Rudd in a lot of stuff from his early career. Maybe not that Halloween film, but other <laughs> stuff like Clueless. Clueless. Yeah. yeah. And then everything from 40-year-old virgin on. I'm going in. Come on, this is 40? That movie just sucks all around. I wrote about that in my 40-year-old critic blog. That's why I brought it up. <laughs> I, I just, I've liked him in stuff. He's done pretty well. Yeah, I, he's a likable guy. He's Tom Hanks, uh, 10 years younger. Yeah, so am I Avengers 2 excited? If they did an entire phase one and two marathon, would I be going for Ant-Man? Nah. <laughs> but I'm certainly going to be there at the first showing in my town because I'm excited enough to see the next Marvel movie. And I'm thinking no matter what, it can't be as bad as Thor 2. <laughs> we will see. I'm sure we will debate that next week. And don't forget, if you want to support this show and help us keep seeing all these theatrical movies. Oh, my God. So many theatrical movies this year. We need your support. Our donation drive is still open. All the podcasts are out, so if you're the person who likes to binge listen to podcasts, you can get 16 bonus podcasts covering Indiana Jones, Goonies, Jurassic Park, Westworld, Future World, and Poltergeist. Or there are smaller packages that have either 11 or 5 podcasts in them, and all the money you donate goes to support this show and let us keep doing what we love. So head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner at the top to hear some previews of those shows, and find out all the details. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me, and until two weeks from now, mission accomplished. Ghost protocol. We're shut down. No satellite safe house support or extraction. Thank you for listening to Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode in the Mission Impossible retrospective series. Seems we have a lot to talk about, don't we? Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another Mission Impossible review, culminating in a week of release review of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Or have you been away so long you've forgotten how good we are? Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews of hundreds of other films, including the Avengers films, Rambo, the Ocean's Eleven films, the Batman movies, and more. I am gagging for it. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Where else am I going to go? You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post written movie reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. Oh, that was nothing. That was fun. That's fun. 
understand you're very upset. You've never seen me very upset. Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. Relax, Luther. It's much worse than you think. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. Are you in or not? Of course we're in. Now Playing is edited by Heath, Anthony, Stephen, and Arnie. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Is he serious? Always. <laughs> the movie discussed in this podcast and the music used are the property of their copyright holders and no infringement is intended. My lawyers are going to have a field day with this entrapment jurisdictional conflict. Maybe we'll just leave the courts out of this one. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I don't have to tell you what a comfort anonymity can be in my profession. (laughs) It's like a warm blanket. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. We were unprepared, in the dark, disavowed. And the only thing that functioned properly on that mission was this team. I don't know how we ended up together. I'm glad we did. There are a lot of external and internal threats facing Tom Cruise and Ethan Hawke. Uh, Ethan Hawke. <laughs> if Ethan doesn't deliver the Roberts, Roberts. And I do know <laughs> I was talking about him way back, like in 2008, when Now Playing was just starting. And we were just talking on the forums about Philip Seymour Hoffman and how much I loved his career. And someone on our forums is like, the I sharded guy from Along Came Polly? That's all he knew <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman as. I just watched that scene the other day on YouTube because I, I didn't believe he was in that movie. <laughs> I don't know what this is. Isn't that an Adam Sandler movie? Uh, oh, close. Ben Stiller. Oh, okay. Jennifer Aniston. You just look up I sharded on YouTube and you'll see it. <laughs> okay. It is the low point of his career. I, I, he has several low points. I feel like he made mistakes. Doe gray? Like you think of doughy and gray, that's like a pasty fat man. It's a terrible name. He really needs to change that. I thought it was Doug gray. Go with Doug gray, dude. No one will even care. No one will know. I think it might be Doug gray. Doe gray. Oof. Go <laughs> great. Like your career, like your acting. <laughs> <laughs> like Philip Seymour Hoffman's belly. <laughs> yeah, Philip Seymour Hoffman could go by Doe Gray and it would be cool. <laughs> that guy. 
you need to be oh. Zap Galactus or something. You need something flashy. You need to... <laughs> Zap Galifianakis would sue him for that. <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne. I just, I always love Lawrence Fishburne. I oof. From always, yeah. You, I mean, from no. Apocalypse <laughs> Now all the way through that. Uh, oh, what was that Charlie Sheen prison movie? Mm, I love that one. Uh, Charlie Sheen prison. Charlie Sheen prison movie. Is that real life? <laughs> Cadence, nineteen ninety. Cadence. Oh, okay. Uh, I thought you were talking about something recent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was <laughs> you're like, like, you're going from seventy to ninety. That yeah. another twenty oh, wow, years you got to yeah. cover. No, that's okay. what I'm saying. Is I I like him always. I would make it a point to see a Larry Fishburne movie. I got a little bit off put when all of a sudden I'm Lawrence now. I mean, if a president can be Jimmy Carter, he can be Larry Fishburne. He was Cowboy Curtis. I mean, he, he can't always be Lawrence. <laughs> 